Hello, I'm Marcus Louth and welcome to the latest edition of the UFO Insight Podcast, where we examine all things UFOs and aliens, conspiracies and mysteries, and all aspects of the paranormal. Okay, today we'll examine just some of the many alleged cover-ups within the UFO community. And we will not only look at some individual cases that many claim have been suppressed over the last three quarters of a century, but also the overall overriding cover-up that permeates the UFO community, including the many suspected pieces of disinformation that may have been intentionally leaked to the public in order to control the narrative of the UFO and alien question. Perhaps we should start with just some of the general reasons and indeed suspicions of authorities around the world, specifically the United States, of covering up and suppressing information on UFOs and possible intelligent life from elsewhere in the universe. Arguably the best place to start would be with the apparent Loswell crash in the summer of 1947, a crash that, according to a military press release, resulted in the United States military recovering a flying saucer. Now when that account was changed around 24 hours later to being nothing more than a weather satellite, many people immediately sensed that something was amiss. And while intense interest in the Roswell crash didn't really build until the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was enough to set the tone of attempts to keep the truth about these mysterious vehicles out of the public among those who investigated them. And that is not to say that such investigators are wrong to have these suspicions and to come to these conclusions, but that United States military, whether intentionally or not, set the tone nonetheless. As the decades progressed and accounts of encounters and run-ins with the men in black grew, as well as allegedly leaked documents telling of secret meetings between members of the United States government and extraterrestrials entered the public arena, the waters of the UFO community became even murkier, and suspicions of cover-ups and secret agendas only grew even more. As we have examined before, there is plenty of reason to believe the suspicion of a cover-up regarding UFOs served the authorities just right, meaning they could hide other dark black budget projects under suspected UFO sightings that they could then simply dismiss as nonsense from unhinged individuals. Indeed, we just might find that at least part of the UFO cover-up very much revolves around this notion. We have examined in a previous podcast just some of the UFO crashes that are alleged to have taken place and the subsequent cover-ups that seemingly followed them. However, it is impossible to examine some of the claims of cover-ups in UFO circles without mentioning at least some of them here. And while many of these occurred in the United States, there are many others from right around the planet and across the decades. Wales, for example, in the United Kingdom, is home to three such alleged UFO crashes, all of which had an apparent subsequent cover-up. Perhaps the most well-known of these, at least in UFO circles, occurred in January 1974, when an alleged alien craft came down in the Berwyn Mountains, an event that was officially put down to an earthquake and a meteor strike at the same time. We have examined this incident in depth in a previous podcast, so we won't go over the details again here. Needless to say though, rumours persist that not only was the event covered up, but that an alien craft and at least one dead extraterrestrial crew member was recovered and transported to a secure facility. Just short of a decade later in Aberystwyth, another apparent alien vehicle crashed to the ground. According to the account, one cold morning in January 1983, farmer Orwell Evans discovered several large crumpled pieces of foil and metal on his land. Upon closer inspection, the material appeared to be the exterior of a small plane or helicopter. 
Evans would immediately contact the police, stating he suspected an aircraft had come down in one of his fields. Furthermore, he would reason to himself. The incident must have happened during the early hours, as the fields were clear of such debris the night before. The Royal Air Force would send an investigation team to speak with Evans. By this time, the farmer had made discoveries of metallic debris in a total of four of his fields. That something strange had taken place was obvious. Parts of the debris had a bizarre green colour to it, as well as a honeycombed appearance. Interestingly, the unit would inform Evans that none of their military vehicles were missing, and furthermore, the material, whatever it was, didn't appear to be from any aircraft that they were aware of. However, shortly after the initial Air Force response team, a second unit arrived, and this one was much more aggressively thorough. What's more, they contained both uniformed and non-uniformed officers, some of whom would claim to be from the Ministry of Defence. A cordon was erected immediately around the fields containing the wreckage. Even temporary floodlights were set up so the team could work well into the night. They would systematically remove every single piece of the wreckage, which would range from large pieces that required two people to lift to the tiniest fragment. Evans would later describe the incident as something out of a James Bond movie. Regardless of the size, the unit retrieved and confiscated every single piece. All that is, except for several small pieces, which would come to light a little later. Several weeks later, the Ministry of Defence would release an official statement regarding the incident. They would claim once more that no military aircraft were missing, and that furthermore, there was no military radar evidence of any other aircraft in the region that night. They would state that the material they had analysed was unidentified. There was, however, little information of any kind of follow-up investigation or what might happen to the recovered material. Perhaps suspiciously, only one newspaper would cover the incident, and only a one-off story at that. Although the minimal coverage ended before it even began, it was enough to bring the case to the attention of UFO researcher Gary Rowe. He would travel to the small village and to Evans' farm in order to speak with the witness directly. With a small team of UFO investigators, they would search the fields hoping to find a piece of missed wreckage so they might do their own analysis. Amazingly, their efforts were rewarded as they found several pieces apparently missed by the Ministry of Defence unit. With the wreckage secured, Rowe would go about having samples sent for testing. As we might imagine, the results were a little more inclusive than the military's findings. They too would fail to identify the material. However, they would claim it had very similar properties to lightweight but strong material used in aircraft. Furthermore, the green-grey material was in fact a paint-like substance which remains unidentified. When Roe looked to return to the farm and investigate further, however, even more suspicious activity was taking place. Evans would inform him that the area of trees he wished to investigate was off-limits. It was now under the control of the Forestry Commission. Perhaps even more bizarre, and as Roe would point out to the organisation themselves, why were they destroying trees and rooting them when their whole reason for existing was to do the exact opposite? They would respond that storm damage had caused them to take charge of the area and declare it off-limits. Even stranger, the soil itself was also replaced. Roe would press the person on the phone as to the highly unusual activities of the Forestry Commission. The response was perhaps even more telling. The voice informed him that it was indeed most unusual, however, this is what he had been told to say. Shortly after this conversation, Roe himself would receive a visit. 
Several mysterious men would visit Rove following his discovery of materials in the woodland area near Evans Farm. They would insist that he hand over the recovered materials to them immediately. However, he would inform them that they were with several different people at locations all around the country. Furthermore, and perhaps a testament to his expertise in UFO circles, Rowe would offer that the respective people also receive specific instructions. If anything was to happen to him, they were to immediately come forward with their piece of wreckage and information. With this, the men simply left and did not return. However, Rowe would claim that his post was obviously intercepted and searched through before arriving with him for some time following the visit. If there are cover-ups regarding crashed alien vehicles, then it stands to reason there will be cover-ups regarding the technology recovered from those crashes. If we return our attention to the Roswell crash, or more specifically the decades that followed, it is very much worth our time examining the claims of Jack Shulman, the CEO of the New Jersey-based company, the American Computer Company. According to claims made by Shulman, in the late 1990s, he had proof of the reverse engineering of non-terrestrial technology, a term most, including Shulman, assume is alien, recovered at the crash site of Roswell, New Mexico. This technology was gifted to certain companies across the United States. They would, in turn, develop and patent new technologies, which would then help develop our modern world. Of course, what type of patents and developing of technologies away from the public record that might have gone ahead is anyone's guess. It is certainly a big accusation with huge implications. Aside from the falsehood and the collections of vast fortunes of monies by these companies, if such technology was not the work of a company or an individual, then it should be freely available to the population at large. This is something that Shulman would begin to do by publishing their work online, as well as many of the files from which they first began to unfold in what could be one of the biggest cover-ups of the 20th century. Shulman would particularly focus on the patenting of the transistor by the Bell Labs company and asked a vaguely disguised question as what if they hadn't actually invented their technology but merely reverse-engineered it. Although he wouldn't divulge from which anonymous source he had obtained it, Shulman would claim that the ACC had in their possession a document referred to as a lab shopkeeper's notebook. This detailed, according to Shulman, in extremely intricate detail, the aftermath of the Roswell crash, and more importantly, what became of the technology obtained from the ruins. According to these documents, the transistor developed at Bell Labs was in fact provided to the company. And what's more, when some researchers have investigated the history of the transistor prior to Bell's groundbreaking technological marvel, there is no obvious developing point between all that came before and Bell Labs' version. It is perhaps worth remembering the content of the book by Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell. In it, Corso, a retired army colonel, would claim to have had direct involvement in the early 1960s with the task of untraceably transferring alien technology from the Roswell crash to such companies as Bell Labs, IBM and Monsanto. Much like the proof Shulman claimed to possess, Corso would state the orders were that such companies would sign official secrets acts and then develop the technology as their own groundbreaking research. Following Shulman's claims, ACC would begin to suffer from very mysterious goings-on. ACC's main bulk of income comes from making PCs and hosting web servers. This would come under very real attack from various angles, and not just the verbal attacks denouncing them as just a one-room office in a busy complex, or that the company didn't even exist and those involved were likely confidence tricksters. 
they would also suffer literal breakings at their headquarters, and even the planting of classified documents in an attempt to bring legal proceedings. Furthermore, it would appear operatives would purchase machines and then simply not pay for them, essentially stealing equipment and leaving the company out of pocket. To say somebody somewhere was not happy with the claims of Shulman and ACC would be an understatement. We have to ask, if Strowman was merely a madman ranting nonsense, why would such companies attempt to quieten him? And why with such zeal? There is no outright proof to directly connect such media giants to these acts of intimidation. Their timing, however, is more than suspicious. As with the sudden personalities who would engage in internet rants and spread false information about ACC and Shulman himself. In short, this action failed to make Shulman come across as a charlatan looking for attention and money. Instead, he increasingly appears to be a person making legitimate claims, claims regarding huge portions of our recent collective history. Just what we should make of Shulman's claims is open for debate. They are, however, extremely interesting, and when put alongside claims of recovered alien vehicles as well as top-secret technology being tested behind closed doors, really rather compelling. It's not just UFO crashes or the technology recovered from them that is seemingly covered up, however. There have been many UFO sightings of multiple people that have featured outright outlandish explanations by the authorities, as well as accounts of interaction and even abduction by alien entities that have seemingly seen witnesses threatened in an attempt to stop them from speaking about their ordeals. Perhaps the most well known of these attempts to suppress information on UFO and alien encounters is the many accounts of visitations from the men in black and just who this mysterious group of people might be, including whether or not they are even human, is a conspiracy in itself. Without a doubt, one of the strangest and indeed chilling Men in Black encounters is surely that of radio journalist Danny Gordon. At the time of the incident in early October 1987, Gordon was working for the country music station WYBE. He was aware of a UFO report from the Sheriff's Department in Whiteville in Virginia. What's more, the witnesses included several police officers, three of whom were former military men as well as being sheriff's deputies. According to the report, they had witnessed a strange object overhead the previous evening. Intrigued with the account, although from a sceptical point of view, not least as Whiteville was Gordon's hometown, he would decide to investigate and subsequently presented a light-hearted piece on the incident that evening. He was, however, shocked by the response of his listeners. Instead of joining in with him and poking a bit of fun at the report, they would report their own sightings, many of which were very similar to the report from the Sheriff's Office. So impressed with the wave of information, and now beginning to view the reports a little more seriously, Gordon would set up a special programme just for such reports. Even he did not expect the response, which he would later describe as a lightning rod moment. Furthermore, according to Gordon, almost instantly, every day the phone would ring off the hook. This, however, was just the beginning of life-changing incidents that were about to unfold for the journalist. The calls would continue to come in, and the more people reported their sightings to Gordon, the more others seemingly felt enough courage to do so. Such descriptions as the objects being egg-shaped or containing red, green and white flashing lights were regular. Although Gordon believed his listeners were most definitely seeing something, he was still of the mindset that a rational explanation would be found. The reports, however, continued to arrive at the station. At one point, the military would issue an explanation as to what the residents of the area were seeing. They claimed they were witnessing refueling missions of the United States military. This was treated with suspicion at best by some of the town's residents and outright rejected by others. 
Gordon, however, would attempt to shed some light on the explanation, even contacting the Air Force General at the Pentagon. He was informed that such refuelling missions would only take place at 13,000 feet or over, and under no circumstances would take place at an altitude lower than that. Given that the majority of the sightings appeared to be an altitude of around 5,000 feet, it would appear the suspicions of the military explanation were well founded. It was at this point when Gordon began to ramp up his investigations, asking his friend Roger Hall to assist in doing so. Deciding they had to see one of these strange craft for themselves, they were travelled to one of the apparent hotspots of the region. At first, it appeared their efforts to witness one of these strange going objects would be in vain. After several hours, they would get back in their vehicle and set out back to the main town. However, only a short time later as they negotiated the road, they saw a very unusual object coming across the horizon. Gordon brought the car to a halt immediately. He would later describe the craft as very large with a dome-shaped top. Furthermore, there was a strobe putting out multicoloured lights on the right side. Hall would offer that the object was approximately 1,000 feet above them and probably just short of that distance away from where they were. He would further state that the object was approximately the size of two football fields and had three huge picture windows at the back of the craft which were lit from the inside out. Even stranger, Gordon would recall witnessing a red ball approach the larger craft and then docking with it. The pair were in such shock that they neglected to take any photographs of the strange craft. They would, however, return the following evening. Not only did the bizarre objects appear once more, but this time they managed to capture several pictures. Interestingly or not, despite the relatively close altitude, the pictures would only show a part of the object and very blurred at that. Events, though, were about to turn even stranger and ominous. Gordon realised the incident he had set out to report as a tongue-in-cheek piece was in fact a very serious story, and one that was unexplained at that. He would arrange a press conference in order to report his findings to a much wider audience. However, the night before the press conference was to take place, he would receive a disturbing phone call from someone who refused to identify themselves. What they did state, however, was the CIA and the federal government were very much interested in the wide county UFOs. What's more, he was warned very clearly that he needed to leave it alone and that he shouldn't be messing in defence matters. Undeterred, Gordon went ahead with the press conference. However, the following evening after returning home from his radio show, he would find someone had broken into his home. He would investigate the property, and while there were obvious signs of a disturbance, he couldn't find anything missing. It was at this point that Gordon would admit he started to wonder what he'd stepped into. Even his wife was fearful and urgent to at least tone down his investigation. The reports, however, continued to arrive daily at the radio station. Then, six weeks later in the late summer of 1987, Gordon along with his wife and daughter would witness another of the strange objects. The sighting occurred as they were heading to their car following a trip to a shopping centre when they noticed a group of children pointing upward excitedly. When they themselves looked up, they could see four different aircraft flying in formation and furthermore, these strange aerial vehicles were completely silent. Once more, he managed to capture a picture. He would further recall, however, that almost immediately after he had managed to capture the photograph, the objects vanished from view. Although the pictures were once more blurred and grainy, they were of far better quality than his previous attempts. 
In all, he would estimate that around 200 people witnessed this particular incident, and a short time after the sighting, around 12 weeks after his report of the sighting in July, he had over 1,500 accounts on his files. And with this evidence, he once again approached the Pentagon for comment. According to Gordon, the response he received was, We do not deny UFOs exist. The government confirms they exist, but we deny they pose a threat to the populace of White County. As shocking as such a comment might seem, and it very well could be a blunt admission, it is likely that the admission will be hidden in the ambiguity of the comment. After all, UFOs could be, from the Pentagon's point of view, something as simple as a balloon or atmospheric phenomena, and not necessarily intelligently guided futuristic aircraft. If they were, however, then the statement from the Pentagon implies they are either experimental aircraft or vehicles of extraterrestrial origin that they have information on that the public doesn't, or possibly a secret agreement to traverse the skies. That would be the last word from the Pentagon. Gordon, however, would receive another chilling warning. As the reports of strange lights over the region continued to come in, Gordon would receive another disturbing phone call one evening out of the blue. This time, the voice on the other end claimed to be a retired military intelligence officer. What perhaps got Gordon's attention was the fact that the officer asked him to record the conversation in case anything happened to him. He then proceeded to inform him of, if true, a harrowing account. The alleged one-time military officer would claim he had researched UFO sightings for years. However, he would also claim that he had suffered a certain amount of interrogation. Of much more concern was the insinuation that his son had been given leukemia, of which he had died. He would then state that they would likely hit Gordon. He would say that this would most likely be done through skin contact chemicals, perhaps on his door handle or the steering wheel of his car. The insinuation here, of course, is that he or anyone else wouldn't likely be aware of the chemical contact, not until they became ill and would not at all suspect such a scenario. While this might sound preposterous to some, we know that intelligence agencies at the very least experimented with such weaponry and assassination methods. Indeed, such notions are not at all as far-fetched as we might think. It was at this point that Gordon truly began to consider the path he was taking and how deep he was becoming involved in an unknown world. Incidentally, the conversation was played in part on the television show Unsolved Mysteries several years later. Several weeks after, Gordon would receive more than just a phone call. One evening while at home, Gordon would receive a visit from two men who claimed they were journalists. They would claim they wished to report on his investigation and Gordon invited the pair inside. While one of the men would conduct the interview, the other would casually walk around the house, taking photographs every now and then. They would stay for around 45 minutes, at which point they wrapped up the interview and gave Gordon their contact details. They claimed they would send him a copy of the newspaper when the article appeared. Several days went by before Gordon contacted the newspaper to ask if the story had ran. To his growing uneasiness, he was informed the publication had no journalists under the name he had given, and furthermore, they were not looking to run a story on his experiences. As the days went by, Gordon began to realise just how much information the two mysterious men collected from him. Aside from the interview, they had spoken with his wife and daughter, and what's more, they had roamed around his home and viewed all of his photographs. It was then he discovered the negatives of the objects over the shopping centre were missing. 
while he would not receive any more threatening visits, the toll of the incidents began to weigh heavily on Gordon. His wife would move out with their daughter, terrified of the events unfolding around her. What's more, Gordon would have a heart attack several weeks later, thought to be caused by stress. He would eventually leave White County. What's more, he would claim that if he could go back in time, he would not report the UFO story. As we can see then, the world of UFOs and their occupant is a murky, nuanced and tangled one, one where the facts themselves appear to be constantly in flux. And this is layered further by the discrete pieces of disinformation that can show up anywhere and from anyone, sometimes without they themselves realising they are passing on twisted falsehoods. Indeed, we might suspect that this murkiness is by design in order to keep the truth about UFO sightings and encounters so shrouded in mystery that even if the truth were to be exposed, there would remain sufficient doubt in the general public. It is perhaps not an underestimate to say that the UFO cover-up is one of the greatest successes in relatively recent history. One where it would seem that one person or even one group of people know with absolute certainty every aspect of the UFO and alien mysteries. And because of this, it is highly likely that neither will we, at least not in the foreseeable future. For now though, I will simply thank you for joining me, and be sure to leave any thoughts in the comments, and check out the links for further reading on some of the cases we have been discussing here today. Remember also to subscribe to our channel, and follow us on social media, to keep up to date on future podcasts, articles and videos. And if there is anything you wish us to feature in future podcast episodes, then get in touch at marcus at ufoinsight.com. Until next time, goodbye, and take care. Thank you.